0: memorable, something about them grips you. And if you're like me, you want to share what you've had with others. Also, if you're like me, you probably want to add some other thoughts of your own that were suggested by that sermon you had. Recently, we were in the United Kingdom, and during that time, I heard such a sermon. And since then, I've planned to produce my version of it. Now, there are two main differences between mine and the one I heard. My sermon, at least I hope, is a single sermon. I hope I don't have to uh, have stuff left over and come again, but that's that's the idea. My sermon's a single sermon, while the original sermon was the last of a whole series on the book of Acts. Also, that sermon, there were five points, and basically each point got about the same time. Well, I'm going to cover the first three points fairly quickly, I hope, and the last two points I'm going to enlarge on. So that is the basic differences. As you saw, the subject of this sermon, this final sermon, is Paul's journey to Rome, and in many ways that journey symbolizes the spread of the gospel through the book of Acts. Now you'll remember that at the very beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples were told very clearly, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as you go through the book of Acts, that's what you find is happening. It starts in Jerusalem. It spreads out into all Judea. It goes into Samaria. And then about halfway through the book, or not quite halfway through, but the Apostle Paul comes along, and the church at Antioch takes a very great part in the spread of the gospel. And it's at that point they're beginning to move out to the end of the earth. So by the end of the book of Acts, a huge part of the world has been reached out to. So, What I want to do now is to see this chapter as a summary, a very wonderful summary of the whole book, and it is because it reminds us of a number of truths that are taught all through that book, and we must focus upon as we go through this chapter together. So if you've got your Bible open, we're thinking first of all about the first 10 verses, And in these first ten verses, we see the Lord's protecting power displayed. And we're reminded that when in trouble and in need, God's people have been protected and kept. And that is the only reason that explains why the church has not been crushed, and annihilated. You find very early on in the Acts, uh, the martyrdom of Stephen, you have the first early persecution of the church, and we're told there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Saul was ravaging The church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now we see the protecting power in these verses here in Acts chapter 28. And we're told the native people showed us unusual kindness. Can you imagine shipwreck? and you're absolutely soaking wet, you have, uh, for days you've not eaten, uh, you just had a little bit before the you, you left the ship, but it's a pretty desperate situation. And then you find there's native people that show unusual kindness. They kindle a fire, they welcome you, and They do this because it had begun to rain and it was cold. We see at that point, not only was there his kindness, but the Apostle Paul was remarkably kept. He had a snake bite. At least we think he had a snake bite. And uh, for the people looking on, these uh, natives, they, they thought, oh, well, he must be a murderer. He must be a murderer. He's escaped justice, but time has come. And it, it's quite interesting. Uh, a little while later, they you change of mind. He's not a murderer. He must be God. He must be a God. Again, we see in this earlier part of this chapter the way in which the healing power of the Lord was displayed. It was displayed, first of all, to Publius's father, but we read in verse 9 that the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Also, you can note the Lord's provision for all their needs in Malta. They were there for about three months before they moved on and all their needs were met. And that's another aspect of God's protecting power and care. And we see that all through the book of Acts. And now, nearly 2,000 years later, as James reminded us, nothing has changed. God is the same. The same yesterday, today, and forever. We can go back Much further than the book of Acts. We can go back to the desert experience of Israel. Two million people in a desert for 40 years. Where did they get their food from? God provided. And it's the same God who protects and cares for each one of his family. Wherever they are and whatever their circumstances may be. And what a comfort this should give us, whatever our circumstances, and whatever their circumstances may be, especially when we think of Christian families and loved ones who may be in all kinds of difficulties or dangers. We're not told that there's going to be no difficulties or no dangers, but we do know that God's going to look after us in these difficulties and dangers. Now, it's certainly true that God is not working miracles in the same way and to such a degree as we see in the book of Acts, but we still have a mighty miracle-working God who is caring for and protecting his children wherever they are And in whatever difficult or dangerous circumstances they're in. We see it as we go back to Acts. And the Apostle Paul has just been in a shipwreck. Now, we're very thankful that the shipwreck happened where it did. And they all came to land safely. But that's the wonderful thing. They were protected. They were kept. And they're alive and then we move on to verse 11 to 16 and there we are told that the lord's purposes were gloriously fulfilled now our bibles our church bibles tell us uh, that this this section is entitled paul arrives at rome and this had always been The Lord's intention. When Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. And went through quite a lot of trials there. One night we are told the Lord stood by him. And said take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. So you must Testify also in Rome. And you'll notice the Lord didn't say when. Because Paul had to go through many difficulties, dangers, and long delays. There were plots to destroy Paul. But the Lord kept him through them all. He was kept in Caesarea far longer than he had anticipated. Over two years and then another three months after he was shipwrecked and landed in Malta, yet the time had come and in verse 16 we see Paul arrives in Rome. Everything happened in exactly the way God planned it. And that's one of the many examples in acts of how All God's purposes are fulfilled. Earlier on in the book of Acts, we have Philip the Evangelist. He goes to Samaria, and God greatly blesses that visit. There's much joy in that city. And then an angel speaks to him and directs him right out of Samaria into a desert place. And there he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is saved through the ministry of Philip. He goes back to his own country and thus the gospel spreads. Time and time again, there's opposition to the spread of the gospel, but whatever happens, God always works it for good. I mean, even when Paul and Barnabas split up and that wasn't a good thing, yet The work spread in two directions rather than one. So in spite of all the power and malice of Satan, we see God's purposes are fulfilled. I wonder if you've ever thought, as I've thought many times, in the book of Acts we see a tremendous expansion of the church. We see it spreading like wildfire. And it goes very far. And you would have thought, well, at that rate, the whole world should be evangelized and Jesus should come back in maybe another 70 years. But here we are, 2,000 years on, and it's not happened. But it's all according to plan. God is fulfilling his purpose And you'll notice that God has many purposes. And sometimes his purposes seem very strange. There is a point in the Acts where the Apostle Paul, in fact, if you look at it, it's a very interesting section. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 6, we read, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. To speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysa. They attempted to go into Bithynia. But the spirit of Jesus. Didn't allow them. Now we don't know why. That was. But there was a purpose in it. And spread of the gospel. Went on though. At that particular point of time. These places were bypassed. But. This, again, is something to encourage us. There may be many setbacks, and there are setbacks. There may be many disappointments. But all believers are part of a much bigger picture. We're not all like the Apostle Paul. There's very few people like the Apostle Paul. But I want you to think of someone... Uh, much more insignificant. Paul's sister's son. What did he do? Well, Paul's sister's son heard about a Jewish plot to kill Paul. And he went and told it, and they were saved from it. Now, that's a very little thing, but that's part of the progress of the gospel. And it's exactly the same Today, we all have a part to play in one way or another. And then thirdly, we move on to what was very much the exhortation and the concern of last week, the reality of Christian fellowship and encouragement. We find that in verse 11 to 16. And throughout the whole of Acts, we are watching the development of a Christian family. It began in the upper room in Jerusalem, the disciples and a few others. Before the day of Pentecost, the group had grown to 120. And on the day of Pentecost, if you like, the birthday of the church, 3,000 were added to this group. And we read these words that we're so familiar with as a church. All who believed were together, had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. And in that passage, we see fellowship as a crucial part of church life. As a general rule, there is no place for loners in the Christian life. We are not meant to go it alone. We are meant to be part of a body of believers. Now, there obviously are some rare exceptions, but the general the rule is that we should be part of a local church. And indeed, the gospel is not truly proclaimed if it doesn't lead to church planting. In Acts, we have an example after example of how Paul was encouraged by the fellowship of other believers in all his missionary journeys. He never went alone, even in his letters. Paul speaks of individuals who were of real help, real encouragement. You've got names that come to mind, Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and many other names. And as we reach the end of Acts, we're reminded once again of the great encouragement that can be gained from Christian fellowship. Verse 13, On the second day we came to Putelio. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so... We came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, we read, Paul thanked God and took courage. Staying there in Petelio, he was met by the people of Rome. This was a 30-mile journey. Today, a journey of 30 miles using a car or rather some form of public transport would be fairly easy, but it wasn't easy then. And this almost certainly was done by foot, but this was a token of the warmth of fellowship in that early church. Now, I've gone through these points very swiftly, but I want to stay a bit longer for the final two points, because this book of Acts is concerned supremely about the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we note from verse 17 to 29 the different responses that there are to the gospel. Now, as always, the gospel met with one of two responses from each one who heard it. And we're told that here in verse 24... Some were convinced by what he said. And secondly, but others disbelieved. Now, right from the day of Pentecost, you see this pattern repeated. Now, in one sense, Pentecost was unusual with this overwhelming response of 3,000 being convinced by that gospel that was preached by Peter. But even then, it's clear, they didn't all believe. It was only those who received his word who were added that day to the church. Probably this 3,000 were the majority of Peter's hearers. But doubtless, some of those who mocked at the beginning of his sermon continued on in their unbelief. And these different responses are seen even more clearly when Paul preached the gospel in his missionary journeys. At Thessalonica, we read in Acts 17, verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And then, by way of contrast, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. They didn't believe. And they showed their disbelief in this violent opposition. And then in that same passage, just a bit further on, at Berea, Even though all his hearers were Jews, it was a very different response. We're told now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And then in the next verse, we have the consequences of this. Many of them, now I didn't say all of them, but many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And then again, we have that contrast. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Now you'll see a bit later why I'm emphasizing this opposition. Once again, you have a similar response at Athens. Firstly, there is a clear, unbelieving response by some. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And then secondly, there was another unbelieving response. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. Now they didn't mock as some of them did. They simply presumed that they would have a further opportunity to hear them. And I want to Remind you all this morning. This is something very important. And we need to say this as we speak to people. Don't think that you've got the whole of your life to decide for Christ. It's now. There's an accepted time. When you hear the gospel, that's the time. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Don't presume that you're going to have another opportunity. In many cases, that isn't the case. Because we read in Paul's, uh, at that particular point in Athens, we read, Paul went out from the midst. But thankfully, the account doesn't end there. It goes on to tell us of the believing response of another group of those who heard. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Ariagopite, and a woman named Amaris, and others with them. Now these are just a few examples of the two possible responses the gospel produces. Some will believe and accept the Savior God has provided for the salvation of sinful men, And others will refuse to believe this gospel and will reject the Savior this gospel offers them. And that's exactly what happens again in this passage in Acts 28, 24 following. We read that Paul was in his lodgings and these group of people came, Jews, And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And there you have it. The division takes place. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And today, almost 2,000 years later, the same division takes place. Some are convinced and believed, while others are not and don't believe. Now, what I want to focus your eyes upon is very important. Paul's final words to this completely Jewish congregation clearly. Tells us the answer why this happens. This was a fulfillment of prophecy. God's word tells us that this is what's going to happen. With the good news. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers. Through Isaiah the prophet. Go to this people. And say you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but you will never perceive. Now this prophecy was delivered during the ministry of Isaiah the prophet. For hundreds of years, God had warned Israel that he judged them if they didn't repent of their idolatrous ways and disobedience. And then in Isaiah's day, God makes it clear that most of them, not all of them, but most of them will never repent of their idolatrous ways and disobedience. They've hardened their hearts. They've hardened them too often. And soon they must be judged for that. How will he judge them? Well, they've hardened their hearts. And God is going to harden them even more. So the prophet goes on. This people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now we have at this point something very solemn about the gospel. The gospel is not to be trifled with. If you don't respond to the gospel when you hear it, you'll find a process takes place. And your heart will be hardened. You'll hear it again and it'll make less impression on you until you can hear it and hear it and hear it and nothing changes. And that's a very serious matter. And this prophecy was fulfilled over and over again. It was fulfilled under Jeremiah and Ezekiel's ministry. And the awful consequences that followed. uh, Jerusalem's destruction. The Babylonian captivity. And in all of these judgments. The hardening of his people's heart. Was always partial. It wasn't every Jew whose heart. Was hardened. There was always a remnant, a very small portion. And again, this was fulfilled in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the words, and we've done them not so long back in John's Gospel. We're told at the very first chapter, Jesus came to his own and his own people didn't receive it. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody in Israel rejected him. Praise God, there were some that did receive him. As the next verse goes on to say, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But while there were those privileged to heed that gospel and become children of God, there were others who didn't. And were, it was the majority that didn't. And later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 12, he tells us that in spite of all Jesus' miracles, and I think this is something we need to think about today, because you have people saying, if we just have miracles, people will believe. It's not true. Miracles don't make people believe. It did. Make people believe in Jesus' day, and it won't today. And we see that so very clearly. And it's very interesting what happens. They still did not believe in him. And in the next verse, John explains that this unbelief was a fulfillment of a word spoken By the prophet Isaiah. Now it's another word that Isaiah spoke. It's found in Isaiah 53. The first verse of that tremendous chapter. Lord who has believed. What he heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. And now John draws his conclusion. Therefore they could not believe. And here's where it's very interesting. To further prove. This conclusion, he adds exactly the same reference from another part of Isaiah that Paul uses. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now, there's no doubt there's a slight difference in the wording of John and Paul's quote from Isaiah, but it's undoubtedly the same passage that they're quoting. And here again, Paul finds this reality in his ministry to his fellow countrymen. Always in his evangelism, his first approach was to the Jews. In his missionary journeys, wherever possible, he'd start his ministry in the local synagogue. Yet with a few exceptions, the majority of Jews opposed his teaching. The obvious exception was Berea, where many believed. Now he comes to Rome. And he follows the same pattern. After three days, he reaches out to the local leaders of the Jews. This resulted in a meeting in his home when these leaders, along with many other Jews, listened to Paul, expound their scriptures from morning to evening. It wasn't a short thing. It was a whole day. And by this time, a division among the Jews Had taken place. Verse 26 records. They began to disagree. Among themselves. It also records. That before they departed. Paul made one statement. And this one statement. Actually falls into two parts. And so far. We've only thought about the first. The unwillingness. Of the majority of Jews. To believe the good news. Paul proclaimed. Was a fulfillment. Of Isaiah's prophecy go to this people, i.e. the Jewish nation, and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but you will never perceive. Now we're not told on this occasion what proportion of Jews believed and what proportion disbelieved. What we are told is that God, not man, determines who will Or won't believe. God. Not man. Determines. Who will believe. And so. I would remind you. As we are involved in the same task. of Seeking to spread the good news. We don't try to trick people. By telling them. It's up to you. Everything depends upon you. It doesn't depend upon you. Unless God comes and wakens the sinner, he'll stay in his sinful sleep until he wakes up in hell. And we've got to recognize this. We need God the Spirit to come and convince people of these truths. And Paul makes it even clearer in this second part of his statement. It's as if he turns to these Jewish unbelievers and says, In your foolish pride. And he loved the Jews. He wanted to see them saved. In your foolish pride. You reject this salvation of God. But don't forget. This is not a salvation. That is only offered to the Jewish nation. Let it be known to you. That this salvation of God. Has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And from his own experience he could have added yes they'll listen, they will understand, they will believe and they will be saved. He'd seen it time and time again. But there's a fifth point and that's the final point. We see Paul and I think to me this this could be a sermon on its own but it won't be. We see Paul for two more years boldly confidently preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we're told. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Isn't this amazing? Paul was a prisoner of the Lord. That's how he describes himself. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. He was a prisoner of the Lord. And Paul was a prisoner of the Lord in Rome on two occasions. These two years, summed up in the last two verses of Acts, tells us about the first Of these occasions. And there was a second occasion later. But this first occasion. Was more like. A house arrest. Than a real imprisonment. Paul had. Considerable freedoms. And he obviously accomplished. A very valuable ministry. During this time. And you'll notice. That there's a similarity. And there's a major difference. Between the first part of his ministry. As described in the earlier part of Acts. And this second part. As described in these last two verses of Acts. First of all. The similarity. Is in the aim of his ministry. It was exactly the same. It was accomplished using the spoken and the written word to proclaim the kingdom of God and to teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. In both ministries, Paul wrote to churches. In the earlier chapters of Acts, it's generally agreed that Paul wrote letters to the church in Rome, churches in Galatia, the church in Corinth, the church in Thessalonica. But what we can so easily forget is that during Paul's two-year house arrest in Rome, it's generally agreed that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, Colossae, and one to a man called Philemon. So a major part of his ministry was a spoken, preaching one. But it's at this point we need to notice an important major difference between these two periods of ministry. In fact, there are at least two differences. Firstly, Paul's earlier ministry was that, if you like, of a roving evangelist. He was sent out by the church at Antioch. And he, along with others, traveled many, many miles. It was no easy business. But in his house arrest ministry, there was little if no traveling. God sent his congregation to him. Now, apart from the initial crowd of Jews, we've got no idea of how many he ministered to in this way what we do have is a wonderfully suggestive phrase with regard to Paul. We are told, and I think this is lovely, he welcomed all who came to him. And I love that phrase because it tells me how conformed the apostle Paul was to his savior. As I read, that phrase. I immediately thought of these words you have before the parable of the prodigal son. We're told, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man And they were condemning him for this. This man receives sinners and eats with them. The same was true of Paul. Didn't matter who came to him. He was there. He welcomed them and he spoke to them. And I find that that is something that not only do I love, but it challenges me and it should challenge all of us. May we seek more and more to follow his example. Now, secondly, Paul's earlier ministry was fulfilled. And this I I find very, very interesting. Paul's earlier ministry was fulfilled amidst great difficulties in suffering. And in contrast, his house arrest ministry was in comparative comfort. Now, at this point, our focus is drawn away from Paul to his master. And again, we have a wonderfully suggestive phrase which gives us a touching picture of Paul's gracious master. Luke tells us that this second period of ministry was carried out without hindrance. Two years without hindrance. And that is a remarkable contrast to Paul's earlier ministry. From the moment of a few days after Paul's conversion, he was a man marked out for serious difficulties and sufferings. In fact, even then, hardly had he begun the Christian life than a plot was being made to kill him. Now, there's no time to focus On that point, but I find it a great comfort to know this. God can so wonderfully change a long season of sorrow and sufferings into two years of ministry that is characterized by great blessing with freedom from serious difficulties, sorrows, and buried sufferings. And that's something we ought to be very thankful for. The God of providence can change situations drastically and has done over the years. Now, we're just about to leave these very fruitful two verses of Acts, but there's just two final brief remarks that must be made. First of all, in these verses, we're given a wonderful answer to a prayer request of the Apostle Paul. A request that he made to the Ephesian believers. And it was a very specific request. You'll find it towards the end of uh, Ephesians chapter 6. He says this, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And how did Paul proclaim the gospel in Rome? Maybe often just to a handful of people. And it's always more difficult to do it to a handful of people. With all boldness. And I want to leave this thought with you. God still answers such prayer. And may we pray likewise. We need God to give us this spirit of boldness. Particularly in face-to-face contact with people we long to be saved. Boldness, not brashness. Boldness. Willingness to tell people the situation as it really is. To show them their need and to show them the wonderful Savior that God has provided. And then finally, as James has already done with his children's talk, ask the question, why does the Acts end so abruptly? It's a funny ending, isn't it? Two years, compressed in two verses. And it's done like that simply because it is... An unfinished story. The book is generally titled. The Acts of the Apostles. Though it's doubtful. That's really the best name for it. The Apostles have all left. The stage of human history. But the God. Who was with the Apostles. Lives on. And continues. And this God is still sending out men and women to spread the good news. God of Acts is still with us and he encourages us and equips us to continue the work of spreading the gospel and to see his kingdom grow. And as I've said many times, God has brought so many of you Africans here, not just for an education, but for the privilege of being witnesses to the people here. The people here, they seem to be so hard. We have been here for over 30 years, and we mourn as we see such a, such a very small return for our labors. As we see the vast majority in darkness. But we take comfort from this. We take comfort from this knowledge that it's not them ultimately that decides. It is the Lord God Almighty. And God has sent us here not for an aimless purpose. May God give us all a new determination to use the gifts that he's entrusted to us here And elsewhere, wherever you go, may you know and enjoy the privilege of living for God, seeking to share the good news and see the kingdom of God advance. Let's just close by way of response, by singing these words, well-known words, take my life and let it be